Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here at 12 midday every Saturday to defend and promote public education. And, of course, that is education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access, available to every child, regardless of their parents' ability to pay. As well as that, it should be public in ownership and control and it should be the only one that is publicly funded. And the government shouldn't be publicly accountable for every penny spent on education in this state and in this country. And the government should also provide a first-class public education for every child in this state and in this country. Well, we know this is no longer happening. We once had a very proud public education system which was allowed to be proud because the money did not go out the leaky sieve into private pockets. And I mean private pockets. I don't care whether private schools are religious uh, and are tax-exempt and are called charities. Mm. Education is not a charity. Education is a right for every child of every citizen in this country, and that includes the refugees that make it to this country as well. But um, we still do have a wonderful public education system and it's worth fighting for, and we're finding out that people are waking up and realising what they might be losing, what they did lose under Kennett, who closed so many of our schools in Victoria, And they are out and about and demanding that they once again have a proud public system which is genuinely free to all children. Now, we have a website at www.adogs.info and this week we've put up another press release, 638, and this is it. Paying for public education, a revenue and not a spending problem. The coalition government's mantra that Australian public services must be starved of funds because Australia has a spending problem is wearing thin. The Treasurer's clothes are in tatters, if not invisible. The government needs to fix its tax revenue problem and it's not the only government in the Western world in this position. Multinational corporations and the world's 1% of wealthy individuals, 62 of them actually, have enriched themselves using tax havens and starved the 99% of resources for basic rights like food, shelter, health and education. Religious multinationals may moralise about this situation and the Pope's very good at this, but they, as charities are tax-exempt, so really they should just be quiet and uh, we should be taxing them too. Trevor Cobald of Save Our Schools has provided an answer to the Australian Government's public education funding problems and his Save Our Schools website. While Oxfam have timed uh, a report to coincide with this week's gathering of many of the super-rich at the annual World Economic Forum in Davos... The report calls for urgent action to deal with the trend showing that 1% of people own more wealth than the other 99% combined. So let's first of all have a look at Trevor Cobald on the revenue problem. He published an analysis on the 14th of January 
on the Save Our Schools website, which shows that the federal government has a potential revenue pool of at least, at the very least, $34 billion a year to finance the $7 billion needed to fund the last two years of the Gonski Plan. Now, I'd like to tell our listeners here that the dogs are not necessarily pro-Gonski, which is uh, a version of the voucher system, which has failed in other places in the world. But public education is in dire need of billions of dollars of resources. The SOS National Convener, Trevor Cobold, said that the government could easily fund Gonski by reducing several tax concessions to high-income earners and by clamping down on rampant tax evasion by high-income earners and large Australian and multinational corporations. So this is what his um, analysis of the high-income earners of the top 20%. You could get another... $16.3 $16.3 billion if you taxed the top 20% with their superannuation. If you looked at capital gains, you could get $4.7 billion very easily. A negative gearing, you could easily get $2 billion. Now, the family trusts, of which there are many, uh, can't quantify that, but you would get quite a bit. And overseas tax havens, well, the sky is the limit apparently. Now, the total, with just what he's suggesting, gives you $23 billion. Now, if you look at the corporate tax evasion, large Australian public companies, um, you could get in at least $4.2 billion, which is the 50% of the Tax Justice Network estimate, and the overseas companies, you could get at least $2 billion from them, scaling up of that, and that represents the scaling up of International Centre for Tax and Development Estimate. So he believes, Trevor believes, that you could get another $6.2 billion just from having a look at the tax havens and the corporate tax evasions. Now, as well as that, there are other tax concessions. For example, there are unused dividend franking credits of $4.6 billion. So that gives him a grand total of $33.8 billion, which would pay for a wonderful health system, an even better education system and even a transport system. Now, Mr Cobalt says that even a partial clawback of revenue lost through tax concessions and corporate tax evasion would just fund Gonski with no problems at all. And he's only, after all, looking for... The $3.5 billion a year for the last two years of Gonski and it's only 10% of the total tax revenue which is foregone annually. And please note that he's not looking at the taxation expenditures which the religious and tax-exempt charities get. In addition, there are many more tax shelters that provide significant benefits to high-income earners and corporations. So he believes that the Turnbull government should stop using the budget deficit as an excuse not to fund the last two years of Gonski and Labor should stop dithering about committing to the plan that he devised while in government. Because the fundamental question is whether the Turnbull government and the Labor opposition is prepared to make the wealthy and big business pay their fair share of tax and invest it in reducing disadvantage in education to improve the lives of low-income students and also improve workforce skills and participation and increase productivity. You know, this is just common sense for the national interest. And he says that if the Prime Minister really believes in the need to develop an innovative, agile, knowledge-based economy, now Mr Teflon man has got his words, hasn't he, Mr Turnbull, Mr Teflon? Um, He he thinks that uh, Trevor Colboy... Cobalt points out it's really a very straightforward choice. And, of course, Mr Turnbull listeners could start by uh, bringing back the money from his tax haven. Now, that's what Trevor Cobalt has worked out. We could very easily get as much money as we need for a top-class public education system in this country if we just even twiddled the tax um, havens and the taxation arrangements for the minimisation of their tax by the wealthy in this country alone. But the Oxfam report 
is even more interesting because this shows that this is not just an Australian problem. This is a problem for all of the wealthy Western countries who have endorsed the uh, neoliberal ideology and this goes back, in fact, to the 1980s when the uh, wonderful public services which we had built up in this country after the war uh, were sold off. They sold them off. Look what Mr Kennett did. Look what Mr Hawke did. Look what Mr Keating did. And they went in with the rest of the world in the big sell-off of the uh, inheritance for the next generation in a lot of these Western countries. So that we now have 62 of the richest billionaires owning as much wealth as the poorer half of the world's population. In other words, the richest 1% now have more wealth than the rest of the world combined. So Oxfam got out this report uh, because the super rich were and have been at Davos for, listen to it, an economic forum. The report says that power and privilege is being used to skew the economic system to increase the gap between the richest and the rest. And the global network of tax havens has enabled the rich to hide trillions of dollars in assets from governments. And this is depriving governments of resources needed to fund vital public services such as education and health. Now, the report also shows that in 2015, as we've just said, just 62 individuals has had the same wealth as, listen to this, 3.6 billion people. I'll read that again. 62 individuals had the same wealth as 3.6 billion people. So the bottom half of humanity are these 3.6 billion people. And this figure is down from 388 individuals as recently as 2010. So I suppose the good news is that a few individuals have dropped off the super, super, super rich list. But the wealth of the richest 62 people has risen by 44%. So it's not that the wealth has gone elsewhere, uh, from these people who've dropped off the super, super wealth lift. It's gone further up the line to the 62 people. An increase, this is an increase of more than half a trillion dollars of one point to 1.76 trillion that these people own. And meanwhile, the wealth of the bottom half fell by just over a trillion dollars in the same period, and that was a drop of 41%. So since the turn of the century, since that wonderful party we had back in 2000, and remember when we all went down to the casino uh, about the um, World Trade Organisation, since then, since 2000, the poorest half of the world's population has received just 1% of the total increase in global wealth, while half of that increase has gone to the top 1%. So Oxfam is telling us that the global network of tax havens is at the heart of the growing inequality. And exploiting tax loopholes and engaging in large-scale tax avoidance are integral components of the profit-making strategies of many multinational corporations because the companies can artificially shift the ownership of assets or the real cost of transactions to paper subsidiaries in low-tax jurisdictions or jurisdictions that do not require disclosure of relevant business information. And profits disappear from countries where real economic activity is taking place and then they reappear in these tax havens. So you've got some very interesting examples of this. For example, the US multinationals reported, listen to this, $80 billion of profits in Bermuda where they don't have to pay tax which is more than their reported profits in Japan, China, Germany and France combined, where they didn't pay tax for that $80 billion. And this huge amount clearly just does not reflect the real economic activity taking place in Bermuda because there is very little economic activity in Bermuda and a large number of very poor people. 
Total sales in Bermuda account for only 0.3% and the share of the total number of employees or total wage costs is a tiny 0.01 to 0.02%. So this global system of tax avoidance is sucking the life out of the welfare states in the rich world and is affecting our children. It's affecting our children and our grandchildren's education. And it also denies poor countries the resources that they need to tackle poverty, put children in school and prevent their citizens dying from easily curable diseases. So one wonders how these 62 people sleep at night. So uh, the Oxfam report spells it out. Market fundamentalism lies behind the increase in global inequality and economic and policy changes over the past 30 years, including deregulation, privatisation, financial secrecy and globalisation, especially of finance, have supercharged the age-old ability of the rich and powerful to use their position to further concentrate their wealth. And it's not an accident, this inequality. It's the result of deliberate policy choices, of governments listening to the 1% and their supporters rather than acting in the interests of the majority. So it's more than time that we reject this broken economic model because our world is not short of wealth and it simply makes no economic sense and it certainly doesn't make moral sense to have so much in the hands of so few. So until the global tax system is changed and there's fairer global governance of tax matters and even just fairness in Australia, instead of talking about the GST, tax evasion will continue to drain public budgets and undermine the ability of the governments to tackle inequality. So I'm very sorry, um, Mr Morrison, we don't have a spending problem. We have a revenue problem and we expect a government in our democratic country to have the political will to confront these corporations that are not paying their fair share. We expect them to confront the real leaners um, in this in this. Um, uh, economy of ours here in Australia. Now, the result of all of this, of course, is that the Victoria has been hit by a school shortage. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about this after we've listened to a little bit of music. <laughs>
Well, we've been listening to some Handel there. Don't you just love those trumpets? Uh, but that was his Sinfonia Number no. 1 from Alexander, one of his perhaps less successful operas, but the music, the Sinfonia, is pretty good. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, and here in Victoria, let's talk about Victoria rather than tax, Victoria has got a population boom, and the state has been hit by a school shortage, and that is the headline of the age on January the 18th in this last week. And we're told, surprise, surprise, we've been saying this for a long time, up to 220 new schools need to be built in Victoria in the next decade to cope with an explosion in student numbers, researchers warned. But despite the alarming statistics for the first time in 15 years, not a single new state school will open its doors to students when classes resume next week. And listeners, when schools do open, and there are a few that might open next year, they will be private-public partnerships. Now, the Victorian schools, our schools, our state schools, must absorb 190,000 extra students between 2016 and 2026, according to an analysis prepared for Fairfax Media by the Grattan Institute, and that will mean 7,200 extra classrooms and teachers and 140 to 220 new government and non-government schools. Well, the non-government schools aren't going to do it. They never have and they never will and they never wanted to. They're on about only the few, the select, and they are on about profiteering, actually. And there should be more investigation of their expenditure of public monies. Uh, This week we've found out that a Muslim school in Adelaide has been defunded because of the way it is using its money. But nobody ever tackles the Catholic Education Office. Now, to state that no state schools open this year is disgraceful. The Australian Education Union, Victorian Barrage President Meredith Pearce said, many state schools are already feeling the squeeze and they've crammed portables into their playgrounds to accommodate extra students. Now, this is amazing that The Age has been prepared to put this on the front page, but even more extraordinary is the fact that the editor felt moved to write uh, in the following way, and Dale will read it to you. Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got an editorial here from uh, Monday the 18th, and uh, the headline goes, Victoria's Disgrace, No New Schools. Ahead of a comfortable election election victory in 2002, the Victorian Government of Premier Steve Brax released its ambitious Melbourne 2030 plan, describing how our city and state would respond to anticipated surging growth in coming decades. Appending the slogan, Melbourne at 5 million, to the plan in 2008, Brax Brax's successor, John Brumby, looked ahead to the challenges of meeting the needs of a substantially bigger population. Melbourne 2030, as it was initially set out, was looked upon favourably by many civic planners, but it was scrapped scrapped in 2011 by the newly elected Bailiou government. The age had anticipated its demise in 2009. The primary responsibility for the failure of Melbourne 2030 lies with a government that has made nonsense of its own plan. The point is that successive governments have expected and indeed welcomed massive population growth and its impact on every aspect of our state, going all the way back to Henry Bolt's Green Wedges in 1971. So the question must be asked, in light of today's report in the age, which which details how as many as 220 new schools will be required in Victoria in the next decade to cope with the rising student numbers, how has such a situation come to pass? Further, our report notes, for the first time in 15 years, no new state schools will open when the 2016 year begins this month. In his innovation statement in December last year, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull pinned much of Australia's hopes for the future on innovation. Quote, 
our innovation agenda is going to help create the modern, dynamic 21st century economy Australia needs, end quote. But with Victorian schools needing to find space for 190,000 more students between 2016 and 2026, according to a report compiled for the age by the Grattan Institute, where is this innovation going to come from? It seems reasonable to expect that a well-educated populace would be inclined to greater innovation. When asked for a response to the impending shortfall in classrooms, however, Education Minister James Molino's spokesman said the government was, quote, working to address the issues created by Liberals' chronic underinvestment, end quote. And yet, as far back as 2010, after many years of Labor rule, the Australian Education Union reported that Victoria was spending less per state school student than any state or territory, $1,151 per student, below the Australian average. The Grattan report suggests some existing schools could take in extra students, some up to 25% more, which would mean fewer new schools required. Instead, the issue would become one of our desperately overcrowded classrooms and of students unable to attend schools where they live being forced to travel long distances to get to an available classroom, as is already the case in the Docklands precinct. Regardless of whether these children are in new or existing schools, Victoria will need about 7,200 new classrooms over the coming decade. Meanwhile, they'll there will likely be an attendant shortage of teachers, which will also require intelligent solutions. Our children must be given every opportunity to thrive. The government needs to craft and implement as quickly as possible a strategy for the construction of new schools and classrooms built where they are needed now, but also taking into account future growth indicators. Planning decisions must be based on the needs of families and should be open and transparent. Our elected officials from all parties must work together, guided only by what's best for the educational needs of Victorian school children. They should heed the Prime Minister's call for innovative action. Well, not only is the government failing to provide for the future free, secular and universal education in Victoria... The education that actually is on offer in our wonderful government schools, and they are wonderful, is no longer free. Well, parents understand that it's no longer free. Now, the school, by law, has to provide a standard curriculum free. But then, what about all the extras? And what is this standard curriculum? What actually fits in there? In the same paper of The Age on January the 18th, in an article in News on page 14, you'll see, and thank you very much to the person who gave me this, the back-to-school pain. And here is a parent who has a young man in Year 12 at Forest Hill, which is, you know, run-of-the-mill government school, and another child, a girl, 12 in year 7, having to fork out, before they even enter the school gates, $4,440. Now, how does that all add up? There's college fees, 670 for Jace. There's college fees, 500 for Jasmine, 12. There's a skills day at the RMIT for 55 for Jace. There's a school camp of $310 for Jasmine. There's school books of $750 for Jace. There's $80 for school shoes for Jasmine. There's uniform items because Jace already has a uniform, but extra uniform items of $50 for Jace. Uh, but there is for Jasmine a school uniform, a new school uniform of $700. Uh, 
Uh, for uh, Jace, however, there is a Year 12 bomber jacket and blazer of $145, men's trousers of $100, and men's business shoes size 13 of $100. Um, there's also, because he likes to play polo, he has to pay $45 for that. And because he wants to do a bit of engineering work at Box Hill TAFE, he has to pay $321 for that. Meanwhile, Jasmine wants to uh, have some violin lessons which are available and they're $200 per term, so there's $800 for that. And she needs a new Mac Air laptop, Apple, and that's $1,300. her netball uniform on top of the school uniform is $150 and her netball registration, which is part of the curriculum, so that she can have a bit of um, uh, exercise during the week, is $150. And her books are $350. So that's how it all adds up to 4440 And why is this the case? Um, You'll find that the school council is confronted with a lack of resources for individual children and you'll find that they are able to set all of these various costs. Now, the Education Minister James Molino, when he's confronted by parents who are concerned that the cost of a free education is going up every year said that the 148 million CSEF would help more than 185,000 students this year. But uh, that's only very, very basic. And schools, he says, must keep parent costs to a minimum, ensure that students are not treated differently where families cannot pay. Well, these are all good motherhood statements, but it really we know that this doesn't work out. You have uh, charities like the Smith family, and some of us do give money to the Smith family and have children that, that uh, communicate with us. Um, their parents, a sole parent without a, a job, can't possibly look at these kind of figures. And uh, the Smith family can't even look at these kind of figures either. So um, the federal government spokesman is claiming that $20 billion a year was spent helping families with costs of child-rearing. I don't know what that really means. But even in England, you don't have these kinds of costs. So um, there really does need to be a good hard look at the way principals and school councils are being forced to actually make our government schools, our proud public schools, non-free. And it it is a great worry, I believe. But look, that's enough for me today. Uh, I'll hand you over now to Robert. Thank you very much, Jean. You're listening to The Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. If you're interested in finding out more about what Jean's been saying about taxation and indeed about how that affects our schooling system here in Australia, you can do that quite easily by going onto our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. I'd like to return to this whole idea about... Was 62 people owning as much of the wealth of the planet as 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 half of 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 the population of the planet? It's quite an extraordinary thing. Um, I think it even trumps feudal times in terms of inequitable <laughs> distribution of wealth. Uh, back in feudal times, the lords had a lot and the peasants had to get by. It's kind of a bit worse now, really, when it comes to the way our planet is dealing with how it is that we as human beings are getting on together. And indeed, um, after these messages and a little bit of music, I'll be detailing how this sort of free market theology affects um, education around the world and indeed much closer to home.
Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due Wednesday 17th of February at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR's station manager, Mary McEwen, on 94198377 or download the nomination form from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash people. Doggrave Survival Day is in its ninth year and will be held on January the 26th at Borthwick Park, Benson Street, Belgrave. This year, we're excited to host the legendary and award-winning Kutcher Edwards and the Deans of Soul, as well as the Mullah Mullah Choir and hip-hop dancers. So come along from 12 noon and celebrate Survival Day. For more information, email survivalday at gmail.com. Goldgrave Survival Day is a 3CR supporter. Illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. Yes, welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. That was Alan Knott um, uh, resurrecting Wagner from the grave through the magic of radio to wish 3CR a happy birthday. Happy birthday indeed to 3CR. Um, you listen to the Dogs Program, as I said, and we're here to defend government schools. Um, often we talk about defending government schools from the vagaries of various religious organisations who want government money to make sure that um, the children um, in the schools that are religious are inculcated with particular values. But just recently there has been another very strong force which has been attacking the public schools in Australia, and that is, in course, of course, what we call the free market theologists. Uh, the idea is that all people should have a choice and they should have a choice to send their child to any school that they want um, and that the government um, should pay taxes to subsidise this particular choice. Now, it's worth pointing out that just recently over in the United States, Louisiana, in over there, the school voucher scheme has actually um, been running for some time. Now, a school voucher scheme, which is functionally what the Gonski reforms are, is where you give an amount of money to a parent and the parent then says, I'm going to send my child to this school, not that school. Now, this has extraordinary um, effects on how the education of Louisiana has been taking place. Because in the chaotic aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, um, this, is, this is some time ago now, the Louisiana Department of Education took the opportunity to, t- to turn the entire state's education system into a vast experiment. Um, and it was an experiment in what they call free market education. It is exactly what has led to the distribution of wealth, because since Hurricane Katrina, as Jean quite recently pointed out, the inequality of wealth distribution on the planet has accelerated quite substantially. And it has to do, of course, with free market ideology. And in Louisiana, after the, as I say, after the hurricane, they indulged in free market education policy. Now, I'm quoting here from a very interesting article, again, by a good friend of the dogs, Trevor Cobalt, who's done some research on what happened in Louisiana. Now, the large majority of public schools um, in New Orleans were turned into privately operated charter schools that are publicly funded, so still taxpayer funded, and a voucher scheme was introduced to provide public funds for students to attend private schools. Now, since that time, the whole experiment has been a massive failure. Last year, um, this is in 2015, a major study published by the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University found that in New Orleans, these changes has created a set of schools 
that are now highly stratified. Now, they're stratified by race, they're stratified by class, and they are stratified by educational advantage. The most selective, highest achieving, best resourced and most sought after schools within the system are now, after, this is about 10 years on, completely out of reach to the large majority of students in public schools in New Orleans. Now, of course, a new study published this month by the US National Bureau of Economic Research shows that the voucher scheme has reduced student achievement overall. The researcher found that the scheme had lowered the mean test scores and increased the likelihood of failure of students in maths, in reading, in science and in social studies. Now, the rapidly growing Louisiana Scholarship Program, or the LSP as they call it, is the fifth largest vouchers program in the United States. It provides public funds for disadvantaged students at low-performing Louisiana public schools to attend private schools of their choice. This is a sort of a SOP. The idea is if you come from a disadvantaged background, you get some extra money and then everything will be all right. Now, the Louisiana Scholarship Program vouchers were allocated by, get this, a random lottery at schools with more applicants than available places. This feature enables researchers to estimate the causal effect of the vouchers by comparing outcomes for the lottery winners and losers in the first year after the program expanded statewide. Now, this comparison revealed that the Louisiana Scholarship Program participation substantially reduced student results. It lowered average mathematics scores by... Um, well, I can say 0.4 standard deviations if you're, if you're a statistician, but what I mean is that that's actually a, a statistically significant and very large reduction in results for the kids. It also reduced science and social studies results by an equally large amount, and there was a decrease, a smaller decrease, in reading skills for all these students. The study also found that receipt of vouchers increased the likelihood of failing between 24 and 50%. The study also found that these impacts were similar across family income levels and geographic locations. The effects were more negative for the younger children and the vouchers um, did indeed reduce um, reduce achievement for kids also when they were older. So if we're thinking here of talking about Gonski as a saviour, because Gonski is a voucher system, we should just look to Louisiana. It's just happened in the last 10 years, and it's a complete disgrace. And the children of Louisiana will actually have to pay for that, and they will be the adults of Louisiana in years to come, and their education levels will be less. It's probably one of those times in human history where you would have to say that in certain places like Louisiana, the march of progress has turned backwards the next generation will be less well-educated than the generation before. It's a fascinating thing. I, I, I certainly think it's worth fighting against this trend in the 21st century, which is indeed why we're here. It's our obligation. It we is. had it good. We really did have it good, particularly those of us who went to school just after the war when the men came home and fought for the children for a good education and a good health service. So that's why we're here. Mm. We're here because we owe it. Not everybody has that idea, unfortunately. Because education is too valued. I mean, it's just such a valuable commodity, certainly the 21st century, to put into the hands of a market. Now, the market, of course, has this sort of particular mantra, which is choice, choice, choice. The more choice you have, the better it is. But I'm not sure that's the case in terms of education. And um, there's an interesting article here which demonstrates this, not in Louisiana, but much, much closer to home here in Australia. Um, Christine Ho, who's from the University of Technology of Sydney and indeed Macquarie University, um, have written a very interesting article in The Conversation, and it's just quite recent. It was on the 20th of January. And the article was entitled, Gentrification is Dividing Australian Schools. Now, we have this concept of the haves and the have-nots, And for those people who are interested in current affairs, it's probably reasonably obvious that there is a quite significant downturn in the world economy at the moment. And there's going to be, I think it's not worth sort of beating around the bush, probably a downturn in the Australian economy. So a larger number of people are going to have a small amount of money. And when it comes to educating their kids, the state school system, as Jean has quite rightly said, is going to be put under a lot of pressure. But how does it all come out in the wash if choice is your god? Well, 
Christine Ho wrote an interesting article where she said that gentrification is actually changing how people relate to each other in local primary school communities. In certain areas in Australia, such as the suburbs of Sydney, schools are becoming more polarised. Some schools are more desirable to the new middle-class families in the areas, while others maintain a more disadvantaged profile. Gentrification, or the movement of middle-class, predominantly white people, into poor, non-white areas, is transforming urban communities around the world. With new cafes and bars and housing renovations, gentrification can enhance formerly run-down inner urban areas. But it can also increase inequality and division. Now, focusing on one gentrifying Sydney suburb, the research that Christine Ho did at UTS found that the influx of middle-class Anglo-Australians into traditionally working-class, migrant-dominated areas has led to a polarisation between and within schools. Schools are increasingly differentiated as gentrifiers seek to create suitable social environments for their children, sometimes avoiding certain local schools. Now, these shifts are intensified by the public policy of, guess what, school choice. This enables parents to bypass their local schools for more desirable ones. Now, in the name of this choice... Governments have increased funding to private schools and have expanded hierarchies in the public school system. There are selective schools and gifted and talented programs being perfect examples of this. But in their research, it was found that it is generally middle-class parents who exercise this choice. They spend time and energy researching and discussing schooling options, and working-class parents tend to just use their local public schools. The combination of gentrification and school choice policies have led to a polarisation between schools. Now, their research looked at two public primary schools. Let's call them, in their research, these are not their real names, the Coopers Creek and Coopers Hill. And they're all both, well, they're both of them in the same Sydney suburb. Both schools have a long history of servicing disadvantaged multicultural communities. Now, in the last 10 years... Coopers Creek has become a highly desirable school for white middle-class gentrifiers. It is, and I quote, hip and groovy, according to one of the interviewees in this research. By contrast, many interviewees described Coopers Hill as having been rough school in the past, and it remains a school avoided by some parents. Now, gentrification initially enhances the social and cultural diversity of an area, so it has the potential to create a form of what they call everyday multiculturalism, in which ordinary interactions occur across cultural differences within people's daily lives, making difference normal. Cultural diversity is often a drawcard for the gentrifiers attracted to a cosmopolitan urban lifestyle, and I would add, of course, um, a lot of gentrifiers like things like authentic urban lifestyles. Let's go back to Cooper's Hill, that is the, the, I quote, rough school, which has been less affected by gentrification and still has a majority of students from language backgrounds other than English. Multiculturalism is valued by both white and non-white families there. Many proudly list the ethnicities of their children's friends, including those whose, and I quote, whose names we can't pronounce. Migrant parents are relieved that, at this school, the children don't stand out and that being surrounded by non-white kids becomes the normal for them. Meanwhile, Anglo-Australians appreciate their children mixing across cultural differences because it reflects real life. That's at Cooper's Hill. However, everyday multiculturalism is only possible when schools sufficiently reflect the diversity of the larger community. Let's go back to Cooper's Creek, the hip and groovy primary school. Now, less than a third of the students come from a language background other than English. The school is much less diverse than the suburb overall, and more than half of those residents speak a non-English language. Now, some of our Cooper's Creek respondents to the research were acutely aware that although they had moved to the area for its cultural diversity, they were in fact of a movement displacing non-white residents. One laughingly recounted her shock at seeing her daughter's kindergarten class photo in which 
all of the girls were blonde. At this school, cosmo-multiculturalism, best described as multiculturalism without migrants, is the dominant form. Members of the white majority engage in cultural difference through consumption, for example, enjoying ethnic cuisine or learning foreign languages. At Cooper's Creek, the hip and groovy school, a number of non-white students felt so dramatically that the school was no longer funded to teach community languages. But so many of the parents valued foreign languages, learning that the Parents and Citizens Committee instituted its own classes before and after school in five languages, including Chinese. Although there were very few Chinese families at the school, and I quote, Western parents like the idea of their kids learning Chinese, as one respondent said. Chinese here is offered not as a community language, but as a language with obvious future professional applications. Another respondent to the research lamented the school's success in the annual statewide multicultural perspectives public speaking competition because, and I quote, Every year there, you see the whitest, most Anglo-Saxon kids standing up, winning the competition, with no basis from their own life experience, and the kids who really have greater insight into it are completely silent. Even at the more diverse Cooper's Hill, which is the rough school, ethnic mixing occurs at the most extensively among non-Anglo-Saxon families. Though the Anglo parents valued diversity, some expressed disappointment that their friendship circles did not reflect the full diversity of the school. Now this mirrors European research showing that gentrifiers who profess to value diversity often do not have culturally diverse social networks. This polarisation is a direct outcome of the marketisation of education. Our schools are increasingly in competition with each other in an educational marketplace. Division and inequality will continue to grow. Rather than being microcosms of the community, schools are increasingly divided by class and ethnicity. And this should ring alarm bells for anyone concerned with social cohesion and justice in Australia. And that's an excerpt from an interesting article, as I say, written by um, several researchers who had done some very interesting work. That is Christina Ho, and I forgot to mention her co-researcher at Macquarie University, which is Eve Vincent. Now, I think this is actually quite, and how can I say it, it's the canary in the mine, really, isn't it, when it comes to Australian education? It really is, because, yes, the marketplace creates a situation where there are winners and losers but for the nation as a whole to create a large number of losers who are poorly educated is not sensible in the 21st century now this of course takes place all over the place Um, and we're talking about two public schools in the one suburb and how it's happening in that situation but it's been happening in a much more aggressive much more aggressive and much more open way when it comes to the private schools because indeed a worrying number of private schools are actually refusing to enrol students with disabilities. Yes. And um, they're asking them to leave. Yes. yes. Now, and children, they can. They can. Absolutely can. be Under law they can because they are exempt from the anti-discrimination laws of this country. Now, these, these incidents range from schools refusing to enrol because, and I quote, they already have their quota of autistic students, <laughs> to actually just teachers asking kids to leave. Because oh, I don't, they, don't, they don't even have to say why. Some wealthy private schools have told parents they lack the resources to accommodate disabled students or requested families pay additional money because their child is disabled. But this just happens under law. This just happens every single day. I mean, it's not a matter of dividing up because it's gentrified. This is just what happens every day. And private schools will talk about values till the cows come home. But what kind of values? The values of excluding people you don't like. Mm. Now, it happens. Um, it happens quite often. And there's a very interesting story here in an article by Henrietta Cook, who's the education reporter in The Age. Um, and she said, I think it's a fascinating thing, because she said what happens is that the mother of one child has actually accused Melbourne Girl's grammar of discriminating against her daughter, who has ADHD. This mother said that in 2014, after the school's speech pathologist diagnosed her daughter with learning difficulties, the school said they were unable to accommodate her. 
The school has a process in the middle years where they pick out certain kids who they don't think will perform highly in the senior school and they try to get rid of them. They do this by telling you at the beginning of the year you should get a diagnosis for your daughter. Then they say that we think she has a learning disability. Then they just get rid of her. Now, the school has sort of hit back at this parent, saying that the school had withdrawn the enrolment because the trust between the girl's parents and the school had broken down. <laughs> now, the, the, the principal, Ms. Mission, told the age that the school had conducted an internal review of the parents' concerns, which concluded that the school had acted appropriately. <laughs> now, I'd just, I just like to say, before we go any further about this, um, Melbourne Girls Grammar, Melbourne Girls Grammar, if you want to send your child there, if you wanted to send your child there last year, it will cost you $30,680 per year to do so. And in 2016, they have actually increased their fees by 6.7%, which is four times the rate of inflation. And so now, if you want to do it this year and send your child to Melbourne Girls Grammar, that's $32,736 to send your child there. And they're telling us that they don't have enough resources. Oh, it... it, it <laughs> The hypocrisy is extraordinary. But you've been listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And um, I know it's funny, but it's sad all at the same time. Um, if you want to indulge yourself in finding out more about what's going on in the education uh, funding, in the education unfairness that's going on, you can check us out at our, web, at our website, which is www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. And tune in next week where we have an in-depth investigation into what's going on in the TAFE sector or the Vocational Education and Training Centre, which if you want to talk about the vagaries of the market completely stuffing up an entire national education system, um, I'm sure scholars from around the world are going to come to Australia and work out exactly how we stuffed it up because it is a massive mess and we'll be examining exactly how, why and how we can get out of it next week on the Dogs Program, Defending Government Schools. But you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I am standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find